through the book of Mark. We've called it the Jesus Movement. And uh, uh, last week, we kind of covered the topic of who is Jesus and saying that going through the book of Mark, uh, we want to try and answer this question. We want to know who Jesus is, and uh, uh, we want to, to get past our kind of own pictures of Jesus that we already have and allow the scriptures to shape our picture of Jesus. Um, you might remember I told the story about uh, that scene in the movie Teledega Nights where um, the family and kind of the, the other kind of race drivers sitting around the dinner table and they start saying grace and um, you know, Will Farrell's character opens up, dear Lord, baby Jesus, and then carries on praying to the baby version of Jesus. And then they have an argument about who Jesus is. And the grandfather's like, no, he's grown up. He was a man. And then, oh, it just goes back and forth. And then there's this one moment where Cal Norton Jr., the one character in, in the thing says, he says, I like to picture Jesus in a t-shirt tuxedo, you know, because I like to think of my Jesus being able to party because I like to party. And I was like, I love that line. It's like one of my favorite lines uh, is like, I like to picture Jesus partying because I like to party. And I think like the reality is so often is our own desires shape our view of Jesus, you know. Um, our desires of what we want Jesus to be like shapes the picture that we have of Jesus. Um, and so instead of allowing the word to shape our view of Jesus, we allow our own desires to shape our view of Jesus. And one of the things that we said uh, last week and that we want to continue to say throughout the series is that we don't want to recreate Jesus after our own image, after our own desires. We want to allow the word to shape who Jesus is and, and then to be challenged by that. Jesus should challenge us. Jesus rocking up on the earth, ministering for two and a half to three years, got him crucified. Like that's how challenging the life of Jesus was at that time that he got crucified for who he was. And uh, uh, there's a reality that if we are genuinely reading the scriptures and opening up our hearts to him, as I pray my own heart uh, would be open to him, that we will be challenged by who he is. If we sit week after week being totally comfortable with Jesus, there's a chance that we've missed him. We've missed the radicalness of who Jesus is. Um, and so part of our prayer over as we go through the book of Mark is that we will be challenged, that our vision of Jesus will be reshaped, um, that our hearts would be stirred um, by Jesus. So now that we've got past verse one, we're going to cover these next 13 verses. And I've got basically six points as we, as we look at uh, this passage that Helene read. Um, and six points that help us understand a little bit more about the gospel um, that will help us understand a little bit more about Jesus. Um, so as, as we said last week, uh, Mark opens up the book with kind of giving us this hint of what the book is about, the beginning of the gospel, the good news, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And uh, uh, so 
now Mark's getting into that introduction properly. And these first 13 verses are a bit of that introduction. And they tell us six things about what the gospel is about, what this good news about Jesus is about. And um, one of the interesting things about these first 13 verses is what Mark is doing is he's drawing back the curtain. So we get like a sneak peek into Jesus. One of the things that you'll realize if you're going through the Mark reading plan is as you go through the Mark, uh, through Mark up until uh, the end of chapter eight, Jesus keeps on telling people not to tell others who he is. I don't know if you've read that or noticed that. It's quite surprising. Like Jesus will heal someone. He's like, don't tell anyone who I am, you know? And you're like, what is going on? It's so secretive. Like Jesus is being secretive. Everyone seems to be being secretive. It's like Mark is holding back, telling us some of the identity of Jesus. But right at the start, it's like he draws open the curtain for a sneak peek. You know, it's like the sneak peek. It's like, hey guys, I'm going to tell you who Jesus is. He's the Messiah, the Son of God. The sneak peek. Hey, we're going to see something of Jesus in his baptism. Uh, we're going to see something of Jesus in his temptation. It's like he opens the curtain. We get the sneak peek. And then for the the rest of the first half of Mark, it's like going to be secretive. He's allowing the events of the life of Jesus to start revealing who he is without saying it explicitly. So what we have right up front in these first verses is Mark's first, like moment of explicitness. He's going to tell us some really key things about the gospel that over the next eight chapters he's now going to like not be explicit about. He's gonna allow the actions and the miracles and the teachings of Jesus to begin to reinforce uh, these things that, will, that are quite explicit right up front in the text. Um, so six points, we'll try and rush through them. Um, I know last week we kind of went like a freight train through the, the thing, so we're probably gonna go through quite a bit uh, this morning as well. Um, so strap yourself in. Hope you're all okay. Bless you all. So first thing, what is Mark telling us? The first thing Mark tells us is that the gospel is historical. Um, the gospel is historical. What's interesting about Mark is that he doesn't tell us anything about the birth of Jesus. He doesn't start that way. He doesn't, you know, tell us about Jesus growing up and he wandered off into the temple and, you know, hanging out and his parents were worried. Like he miss, he leaves out all of that backstory. What he starts off with is he starts off with a prophetic word. He starts off quoting Isaiah. He's actually quoting Isaiah and Malachi in this in this passage. He's quoting two sections, but he's quoting the prophets, he starts off reminding the reader that what is about to happen comes from prophetic utterances that were uttered, you know, Malachi was 400 years before, uh, Isaiah was about six to 700 years before. What, he, what he's doing is he's grounding Jesus in the historical tradition of the Jewish faith. He's grounding Jesus in this idea that what is happening right now is not the new and latest fad. That's kind of like what he's, he's trying to remind them. He's trying to say, hey guys, this is not the new and latest fad. Like back in those days, the idea of someone popping up and being this like radical preacher um, was like something that happened every 30, 40 years, you know? Like it's kind of like someone who has their tent 
kind of revival crusade, you know, like every few years someone would pop up and there would be like this guy that they would follow and then there would be this radical that pop up and some people would be like, ooh, look at this uh, radical person. In fact, one of the reasons, as you get to the end of the story, one of the reasons why the high priest says, hey, I don't think we should worry about Jesus, the one of the reasons why he says that is like, this is not gonna be such a big thing is because many people had popped up before and they had been like a radical or a political revolutionary and they had risen and just died out and it was like new fads came and went all the time. What John the Baptist is telling us, what he's hinting at by, by revealing, by starting off with the words of the prophets, is he's saying, hey, what is happening now is not something new. What is happening now is the fulfillment of hundreds of years of prophetic tradition. What is happening now is the fulfillment of words, of prophecies that were given hundreds and hundreds of of years ago. He's grounding John the Baptist and Jesus in the historical tradition of the faith. Reminding, hey, this is not a new fad. This is not the latest thing. This is not like the cool thing to follow right now. God has been at work for hundreds, for thousands of years. God has been at work. And this now, what we are seeing, what you are hearing about, this gospel, this good news is grounded in the historical tradition of the prophets, Um, which is really great. Because um, one of the things that we believe as Christians, one of the things that we believe is that God, Jesus, is the fulfillment of what God has been doing right from the beginning and what God will continue to do right till the end. That God has one plan for humanity. That plan is Jesus. Someone's not happy. Shame. <laughs> Gotta love it. The second thing that we learn is that the gospel is subversive. Um, Subversive is a bit of a political term. Uh, To subvert is, uh, uh, you know, to seek to overthrow. But when I think of subversion, it's like an overthrow from the ground up. Uh, It's it's. In some ways, when I think of subversion, I don't think of it as like this massive, forceful kind of overthrow. It's like grassroots um, overthrow. And what we learn right up front is that the gospel is subversive. In fact, the, the very use of the term gospel is a political term. The, the, when you know, gospel wasn't a, a new term. It was a term that was used, uh, good news. It was used of a herald that would ride into town. And what the herald would do was tell of the victories or the conquests of Caesar. So the herald would ride into town and he would, you know, go to the town and say, hey, guess what? Caesar was fighting or, you know, we're fighting on that front and we won. It's good news. Stop, have a party. Or the the herald would ride into town and announce, you know, the birth of one of Caesar's kids, you know, like, hey, stop what you're doing. This is good news. See, you know, a a new child has been born. Or when there was the the inauguration of a new Caesar, a new emperor, the herald would ride into all the towns of the emperor and announce this is good 
news. The, the word gospel, eugelion, was different from the word of like someone riding into town and saying, hey, you know, we want to declare there's new taxes on you. That was not the word that was used for just any job that the herald would do. When the herald would announce good news in the empire, um, they would use that word Eugelion, which is the word that Mark uses. It's in some sense, it's a political word, but it's a subversive political word because to say that there is good news that is not related to Caesar is to say that another king has arrived on the scene. It's subversive. Mark is deliberately subverting the ideology of the age, saying, hey, guess what? There is another king that has rocked up on the scene. But it's not just subversive for empire. It's not just subversive for the Roman Empire. It's not just to say, hey, there's a new world order that started. It's not just subversive in that sense. What Mark is, being, what Mark is saying is also being subversive by bringing the description of John the Baptist. You know, John the Baptist, I, I mean, don't you love how... John the Baptist gets described. John wore clothing made of camel's hair. I mean, what is that? With leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Like, who is John the Baptist? This like is a crazy man. And, and he's using that description very strategically because if you go to 2 Kings chapter 1 and you begin to read the description uh, that the prophets a right of Elijah, you realize, hey, what is he doing? He's saying Elijah's rocked up on the scene. But this is where it becomes subversive. Not as he's, only as he's saying, hey, you know, there's a new prophet. Mark is saying there's a new prophet that arose. What he's saying is that new prophet is speaking from the wilderness. He's not speaking from the temple. You know how subversive, how strong, how radical a statement that is to the religious ideology of the day to say that God has sent a prophet and that prophet is not coming through the channels of the religious system. He's not there in the temple. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not proclaiming uh, the, you know, his, his message from there. He's in the wilderness. He's in the nowhere place. He's in the lonely place, uh, as some writers say. He's, he's in like a nothing place. And as uh, uh, Mark says, he says, everyone, the whole countryside, everyone in Jerusalem is coming out. Where are they going? They're not going to the temple. They're coming out into the wilderness. The gospel is subversive. It is making a radical statement, not only on the political ideology of the day, and I think makes a radical statement on our own political ideologies, but it's making a statement on the religious ideology of the day. It's saying God is on the move. God is at work. And it looks different to the power structures of the day. I often wonder, when I think about the gospel being subversive, I wonder where revival will break out in South Africa. Yeah. I wonder through whom revival will break out in the world. You know, there's a tendency to look at the great 
big kind of ministries, you know, to, um, and I won't name any, but you know, there's some really big ministries, people watch them on YouTube, etc., uh, etc. Et you can look at this and it's flashy and the preaching is like so, like, just sounds so good and you feel like encouraged and you're like, yo, when God breaks out, that's how he's going to break out. There's a tendency to think like that is where God is moving. But what Mark tells us is like, hey, when God moves, he moves on the margins, not in the center. God moves on the margins, on the outskirts, in the wilderness, through some crazy looking person who's got camel's hair clothing, eating locusts and wild honey. I mean, like, who is this guy? And yet, God is moving in the wilderness. The gospel subverts our political ideologies. It subverts our false religious ideologies. It subverts our economic ideologies. Uh, Mark is telling us there is good news. A king has been born. God is doing something through Jesus. Um, And he's calling people to realize that something revolutionary is happening. My third point is the gospel is Trinitarian. How's that for a big word this morning? The gospel is Trinitarian. Um, what we mean by that is, is when Jesus is being baptized, um, it says, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. What all the commentators say is what we are seeing in action is we're seeing the Trinity in action. The Father saying to the Son, you are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit descending on the Son, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the Trinity at work in the birthplace of redemptive history. God is God three in one the Christian belief, that we believe that God is three in one, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Last last week, we talked about when Mark uses the word beginning, he's echoing Genesis. Um, And what we see here again, as most of the commentators will say, just as in Genesis, you, you see the Father at work in creation, you see the Word being spoken, creation into being, and you see the Spirit hovering on the waters of the deep. Just as in Genesis 1, you see the Trinity at work. Here again, Mark is echoing Genesis, like saying, just as God three in one was actively involved in in the creation narrative, so God three in one is actively involved in the redemption narrative. The gospel is Trinitarian. Um, And there's a reason why the Trinity, the idea of the Trinity has been so central to the church and so big for the church, not only because it's echoed throughout scriptures over and over again, but because one of the beliefs that we have is that God doesn't create the world out of need. 
when, when the scriptures say God is love, if God was not a trinity, he would not be able to have been love until he created. Because love is the self-giving of oneself to the object of your love. But God was a trinity from be all time, Father, Son, and Spirit, actively self-giving of themselves to each other. God was joy in that holy communion of the trinity. So the creation of the world is not out of the need of God, but out of the excess of God, out of the excess of God's love and his joy, and he creates the world. And in the same way, the redemption narrative is not out of the need of God. Like, oh my, look, the world has gone so bad and I'm, you know, I'm feeling terrible about this and I'm feeling a little bit lonely because everyone's just like evil and like I can't do this. Like, it's not that story. It's out of the abundance of God's love for his people that he rescues. Uh, in Acts 17, it says, it says, God is the one who has no need. He does not create out of need. He doesn't act out of need. He doesn't act out of a deficiency. It is from his self-sufficiency that he loves and gives and redeems and saves. The Trinity guards us from a false view of God in which we believe God in his lack has tried to create. The Trinity guards us in a redemption story that reminds us that it is not the lack that God is at work, but it is the abundance that God is at work. The Trinity is a mystery. It's always hard to try and explain. Three more points, are you okay? Surviving? The other thing that we learn is that the gospel is a call. Um, the gospel is a call. It's a call to repentance. Um, so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We go on and we'll hear a bit about this uh, um, next week in the next passage, when Jesus starts preaching and proclaiming the good news, it says that he preaches, repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God has come near. The gospel is a call to repentance. And now sometimes when we think of repentance, we, we think of like, you know, repentance being this like really, really uncomfortable word. Like you don't want to tell anyone to repent because you don't want to make anyone feel like super uncomfortable. Like you need to repent. You're such a sinner, horrible, you know, like the worst person in the world. Please stop doing that. Come to, you know, uh, sort your life out. Like repentance is an uncomfortable word. But the word repentance is the Greek word metanoia. And the word metanoia literally means to turn around. It means to turn around. It means to go in the opposite direction. Uh, the understanding of repentance is how John the Baptist and Jesus uh, used it was the understanding that John the Baptist was declaring to people, hey, guess what, guys? You're going in the direction. Return, turn around, come back to God. 
That is, that is the request that John the Baptist is making. That's the, that's the call that Jesus is making. He's, he's, when he's telling people to repent, he's saying, come back to God. Come back to your father. Come back to himself. It kind of, kind of like reminds me of, you know, repentance is a bit like when you're using your GPS navigation, you know, that person's talking to you, and then you go like past the turn off. Have you ever had that? And it starts beeping at you and like you turn, turn around, turn around. It's like telling you, hey, you've missed it. You've missed the turn. You've missed the direction. It's this reminder that if you want to, you know, get where you're going, you need to turn around. John the Baptist's message was this, and it's the gospel message. It is the message of the kingdom that God is waiting for his people. We need to return to him. We've gone in our own directions. We've gone in our own ways. We've sought ourselves. We've made ourselves the the full object of our affections. We've made ourselves the center of the world. We've made ourselves the biggest deal. The call to repent is to to return from our self-obsession or to return from our self-righteousness. It's the call to return to God. The gospel is a call. It's a call to Jesus. It's a call to, to God himself. It is, as we see over and over, the call to people to come back to God. You know what the scary thing is? One of the things that we, we learn about Mark is one of the scariest parts of this is that often the biggest thing that we use to hide ourselves from God is not licentious living, like just doing whatever you want to do, just like eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. One of the biggest things that hold us back from returning to God is religion. That's Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees over and over again is that, hey, you guys are using religion as a hindrance to people coming to God. That is his thing. He's calling them back to, to come. What, what you learn as you go, f- if you read uh, the accounts of John the Baptist and Matthew, what you read is that the people who most objected to John the Baptist calling people to baptism was the Pharisees. They were the ones like, who are you? Why are you here? Why are you talking from the margins? Are you a prophet? We don't know who you are. Where do you get your authority? Like they are in all these questions. They want to control this thing. They're like, what is going on? Who are you? Why are you doing this? Like you're out. We, it's, it's often we use religion to mask the hardness of our hearts. I come to church, so I'm okay. I read my Bible occasionally, I'm okay. I give to the church, I'm okay. But all the time, masking in our hearts that we are far from God, masking in our hearts that we are filled with self-righteousness. But the gospel is a call to come to God. And as we learn as the story goes on, to come to God through the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, 
redeeming man through the work of the cross. Two more points. The gospel is an inauguration. So one of the questions we have is like, why did Jesus get baptized? I don't know if you've ever had that question. Like, why did Jesus get baptized? It is, I mean, it's such a good question. I've right on the side of my Bible, like, why did Jesus get baptized? You know, John the Baptist is preaching a baptism of repentance. Jesus is getting baptized. He doesn't need to repent. He hasn't sinned. You're like, what is going on here? Um, and one of the big reasons Jesus gets baptized is that in his baptism is the inauguration of the kingdom. It is the, uh, you know, like when a king gets inaugurated, they have that big like ceremony and, uh, you know, they doing all this stuff and they inaugurating a new royal um, into their position. The baptism is this prophetic inauguration of the new king, of the king of kings, of the kingdom. It is John the Baptist, the prophet, like Samuel uh, pointing out David as the coming king. So we have John the Baptist pointing out and then the, the message of the father and the spirit descending on the son, the Trinitarian response. It's this inauguration, the announcement that the king has arrived is being inaugurated. It's like the most humblest kingly ceremony. John the Baptist himself says, you know, this person who I am baptizing, I'm not even fit to get down on my knees and tie or untie his sandals. Like I am not, like he is so much more worthy than I. I just baptize you with water. I just put you under the water. When he comes, this person who I'm about to baptize, when he baptizes, he will baptize you not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist pointing towards Christ, that Christ Jesus, this one who is being baptized, is infinitely greater than he is. Baptism is an inauguration. It is in that moment the announcement of the king. As John the Baptist says in John, behold the Lamb of God. When he sees Jesus come, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In this act, I must decrease, he says, but he will increase. You know, baptism is like this moment. It's this moment, Jesus' baptism is this moment in history where external to himself, you have, as would happen in the history of Israel, external to the, the person of the king, you would have someone who would announce, inaugurate the king. The prophet would declare them. John the Baptist is doing that. But then we get baptized. You know, why do we get baptized? And, um, you know, there's a number of reasons why we get baptism. Baptism is the outward display of 
the inward work of redemption. God has been at work in us and we get baptized, putting to death the old and like Christ rising up to the new. It's like this outward display um, of, of us giving ourselves over to Christ. But baptism is, and I love this about baptism, is that there is no other event in Christianity, no other act that you do as a Christian that draws the line in the sand as much as baptism to say, I am in, I am part of this, I'm following the king. Baptism is that act of you saying conclusively that I am part of this, I am a member of the kingdom. I have signed up, like Jesus being inaugurated. So in our baptism, it's like we get brought into citizenship. This is not to say that baptism saves us, but it's, it's like an event that is declaring to others, to yourself, to principalities and powers, to everyone around. It's this declaration that I am in. I'm drawing the line in the sand. I am a Christian. I am joining Christ. My, my final point is this, is that what we learn in this passage is that the gospel is a victory. It's a victory. The intention of Mark 1 verses 1 to 13, is to echo Genesis 1 to chapter 3. It's like Mark starts off with the beginning, and he ends off this passage with a temptation. Um, a temptation that when you read Genesis chapter 3, is so vivid, so radical, which a temptation which as Christian tradition and doctrine teaches us, results in the fall of man. Mark is telling the Genesis narrative as he pulls back the curtain and reveals who Jesus is. It starts with the beginning, the good news. It echoes, it goes through. Um, as, as we've seen, the prophets are speaking, the Trinity, God at work in this uh, beginning act, and it ends with a temptation, but a temptation that is not lost like Adam and Eve, a temptation that is won by Christ. It's like Mark is telling us the new creation narrative where Adam and Eve brought about the fall of humanity. Christ is bringing about the victory of humanity. That the story of Jesus in the wilderness, uh, the temptation in the wilderness, uh, is the story of Jesus standing up against the test that Adam and Eve went through, but not failing, succeeding. And ultimately, it is Christ's victory over this temptation, his victory through death on the cross and his resurrection, that we believe that we have good news. 
For the good news of the gospel is that the victory of Christ becomes our victory. That the resurrection of Christ becomes our resurrection. That the sinlessness of Christ becomes our sinlessness. That God who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we who have sinned may receive from him the righteousness of God, as Corinthians says. As Mark opens up his book, he opens up with echoes of Genesis, but he's telling the story slightly different. In Genesis, we saw the brokenness of humanity prevail. But in the gospel, we saw the victory of God prevail. In Genesis, we see Adam and Eve succumb to the temptation of the serpent. In Mark and Matthew, Luke, you see Jesus stand up against the temptation of the serpent. In Genesis, we see the man's descent into corruption. But in the gospel, we see God's restoration of humanity from corruption. Jesus is the one, the new king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, as it says. He is the son of God the Messiah, the promised one, the longed for one, the one who is going to fulfill all God's purposes, the one who is going to bring about the fulfillment of God's kingdom. And when he stands up against the greatest test, he is victorious. And that will echo again when you see Jesus in the garden and he stands up against the test again. And he stands up against the temptation not to lay down his life. And he comes out victorious again, choosing not himself and his own will, but choosing the will of the Father. The good news, like Mark is starting out, announcing the good news, reminding us as we see just right in the beginning, like a little snippet, he's like, Jesus is one. I'm giving you like a sneak peek into this. He's one. He fought the temptation. He didn't give in. He is victorious. This is like the curtain opening a little bit, and we'll see that in full force as he does not succumb to temptation in the garden. So, Mark 1, let me close. Mark reminds us the gospel is historical. This is not something new. It's subversive. God is subverting the the rulers, the powers that be, the empires and religious systems that stand against God and his grace. He's subverting them through Jesus. He's doing that today. The gospel is Trinitarian. It's the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that out of God's abundance, it is the call to repentance. It's the call to return to God. It is the inauguration of the King. And us ourselves, as we get baptized, the inauguration into, as citizens, into God's kingdom. And it is the victory. Jesus stands against the temptation of the evil one and triumphs 
so that we, through him, can find the same victory. Can I pray? Jesus, I thank you for, as Mark gives us a snippet into the new creation narrative, that you are making the world new, right, renewing all things through Jesus. I thank you, Jesus, that you were victorious, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Messiah, the promised one. I thank you that you, Jesus, come and remove the obstacles, remove the barriers, remove all the things that hold us back from returning to God. You draw us to yourself. And I pray, Lord, for every single one of us here this morning, Lord, even as we've started going through the book of Mark, that our hearts would be strangely warmed, as Eugene said earlier. Our hearts would be warmed as we over and over are reminded of who you are, Jesus, and what you've done. Our hearts would be stirred. Our hearts would come alive as we return to you, as we come to you. Our hearts would be ignited with passion as the king of all kings is revealed to us. And I even pray, Lord, that that just as you impute your righteousness to us through Christ, you also impute his victory to us. And so, Lord, I pray for people who are struggling, who are in difficulties, who feel like they just can't get victory over areas in their lives, we ask you now, Lord, that just as you stood for 40 days being tempted in the wilderness and stood and found victory. So I pray that you by your spirit would come upon us and give us victory in areas in our lives that we need. Victory in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.